What we are going to be doing this morning is we're going to, as part of the Meeting the Minds, start the Rambam's introduction to his Mishnah Torah. So just to appreciate this, what we did last week was the Ramban's introduction to his Pirush on the Torah. So it was highly focused on the Torah itself, that what the focus and the point of the Torah Shabbat Sav is, its origins, how it was transmitted, how infinite ideas can be compounded into a finite space. Now we're going to focus on a very, very different perspective. The Rambam is um, one of the most influential figures in Jewish history in so many ways. And um, they, they, they say, of course, about to me, Moshe, Moshe, like, come to Moshe from Moses. To Moses, Maimonides, no one in between got up and uh, um, arose like Moshe. And there's, of course, many Moshes in the room who are smiling. Um, um, the, the, the Rambam in his youth actually was born in Spain and had to flee at a young age with his family. He went first to Morocco because of a radical Islamic control of the, of the region at the time. Um, it goes in, it goes in, uh, in uh, his Jewish uh, history as has gone upwards and downwards between golden ages and, uh, and radical fundamentalists. And so at that particular time, his family fled to Morocco, ultimately moving to Israel and then going back down to Egypt where he settled in Fustat. And as we know that, he became the physician to the sultan. And the Rambam not only was, not only was simply the physician to the sultan, he was so famous that, that, that it, is, it is said, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, in his, in his uh, in, in descri- description of the Yud Gimel Minas of the Rambam, in his introduction, points out that Richard the Lionheart actually tried to headhunt him. Right? Tried, tried to ask him, asked him to be his, his personal physician. That's how powerful the Rambam was seen across the divide of Islam and the and the Christianity. He refused. He stayed under the good reign of Islam at the time. Um, and it, not only was he world renowned for his expertise, but he also was this incredible mind. He shaped and shifted Jewish history in a way that it's very hard to imagine anyone else ever did. And we'll see why in just a few seconds. So he wrote a number of svarim on the run when he was a youngster. He wrote uh, what, what we know is today, um, he wrote in Arabic originally, the Pirush HaMishnayos, his, his uh, explanation to the Mishnayos. And later on, he wrote Moren Nevuchim, um, his, uh, the guide for the, uh, the perplexed. Again, we have to understand the word perplexed is not, a, is not in any way a derogatory term. It's uh, the kind of perplexed that he talks about. Halavai, we should all be that perplexed, you know, after having finished Shas and Poskim. Um, so, but nonetheless, and then at the end, he wrote, well, Mishnah Torah, he wrote it actually, um, the, his Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah literally means the repetition of the Torah. The, the Dvarim sometimes, the book of Dvarim is sometimes called Mishnah Torah. He wrote this book called Mishnah Torah. Another word for it, another name we may hear about is called the Yad. So this is one of the volumes. This is the first volume here of Mishnah Torah. This is the Shabzai Frankel edition. There's 14 volumes of it, and that's why it's called the Yad. The Yad means Yudalad, 14. In fact, he called it himself Hayad Chazaka, the strong hand. Because he divided all the Torah into 14 sections. Okay, so if you t- take a look at the Shara, that the, at the gateway of the Sefer, it's called Hayada Chazaka, his strong hand. And that refers to the 14 divisions of all of the corpus of all of Torah. And the Rambam didn't just leave it to how neighbors dealt with each other. He even talks about how we interact with each other, characteristics, how we eat. The Rambam on every level, the times of the Mashiach, the times of the Beis Amikdash, every single aspect of Allah, he distilled into these 14 Svarim. And in, in introducing this, this is how he introduced it. So the focus of his, of his introduction is going to be not only giving the historical context for why he wrote his Sefer, which is incredibly important, 
But really, what is Torah Shabbat Peh? What is the oral Torah in the first place? Because that's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with Torah Shabbat Peh and distilling it. So what is it? And that's going to be radically different to what we've been learning last week, where we looked at the Torah Shevich Sav, the written Torah, which was what the Ramban was focusing on on his commentary on the Torah. So just to appreciate where we're coming from and where we're going. This, this, this particular Hagdama, this particular introduction, is, uh, is so well known and so important in, in terms of Jewish history. There are, there are books written just on the introduction. Forget, forget the Yad. Forget the, the, the other 14 volumes. So, for instance, a friend of mine gave me a book called the Moora Saramba. This is the Shirim given by Rav Yaakov Weinberg, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Neri Yisrael many years ago. Um, and he, based on his Shirim, his Talmudim put together an entire Sefer just on what we're learning today. Just what a Sefer. Um, Abby pointed out to me and sent me in, the right, um, in a great direction a week ago. And that is, is that, in fact, Rav Chaim Kanievsky has a Sefer called Bishar Amelech, which, uh, which I printed out, which means in the gateway of the king, referring just, just an explanation of this, uh, of this Hagdama itself. So just to appreciate the, the significance of, of these three pages that we're going to be learning, it is a very significant um, contribution to, to perspe- our perspective. And, and uh, I, I think it would be safe to say that we're not going to get all the depths, but it's important to appreciate the, just the overview and as well how much more there is to learn. What the Rachaim Kanievsky is generally doing is he's giving, he's annotating, he's giving notes as to where some of the Rambam's ideas come from because the Rambam does not quote sources as we will see. And um, Rav Yaakov Weinberg is giving more the broader picture when we're going through. So perhaps we'll touch on some of their perspectives as we go through, as we go through. So let's start at the very beginning, which is always the very best place to start. And I, I actually, um, what I did was, like we did last week, is I divided the, the actual, sec- uh, the, the actual hakdom into sections. So I divide this into ten sections. And we're not going to be able to read all of it together just for, because of the sake of time. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus on each section independently, which also means that if a certain section is not resonating, we're not, we're not connecting, the next section is an opportunity to be able to also reconnect as well, just in terms of our opportunity to learn together. So the Ram starts off very generally, and he's going to get very specific. I actually am trying to race to get towards the end, which is where there are some very, very crucial issues that I think that most people are not aware of in general about HaTorah Shabal Peh and the Rambam's ideology, which is really remarkable. He starts off very similarly to the Ramban, and we're going to start off in the first section. So if we're now in the actual text, this is the standard text in many of the versions of the Rambam today. And here's how, here's how it goes. At the very beginning, there's a question that we need to ask ourselves is, um, what was given at Sinai? Like at Sinai, what did the Jews actually walk out with? Exactly. That's question number one that we're thinking about. And question number two is, what happened with all of that? Right? So where did all of that, how did Sinai continue afterwards? That's the question that Ramam Ram is dealing with. Right? So basic questions. Right? We, we have what we have today. How does what we have today relate to what was given then? That's the starting point. So he starts off by saying, on the top right-hand column, he says, Kol mitzvah, kol mitzvah nitnu. Everything at Sinai was given with an explanation. With an explanation. That's important. So it wasn't a random set of ideas. There was a very specific way of understanding them. How does he know this? This, by the way, is the same passage the Ramban quotes when explaining his introduction. That what, how do we know what was given at Sinai? Because the Torah says so. And I gave him the Luchos Evan, the, the tablets. Those are pretty clear. And the two more ambiguous words are Torah and Mitzvah. What the Ramban had said was, Torah refers to 
We'll call it narrative, story, and mitzvah refers to commandments. The Rambam is going to veer away from that perspective, and he says a completely different thing. Torah, zu Torah, shebich sav. Torah refers to the written Torah, which is a finite, um, we'll call it specifically written part of Torah. Va mitzvah zu pirusha. Mitzvah is its explanation. That we're commanded to do the Torah based on that commandment. So let's take an example. The Torah says in the, in the Aseris Adebros, as we get to Aseris Adebros number four, we're told to keep Shabbos. And in fact, in various places in the Torah, it's on the pain of death. But the Torah does not explain to us what exactly it is. So here we have this issue where every seven days we know that if we do something wrong, <laughs> we stand to be... We stand to be in jeopardy of our lives, but the Torah never really explicitly actually tells us what to do or not to do. The closest we get is that in Parshas Vayakel, the Torah says that you cannot light a fire. Okay? If that's all Shabbos was, we were all right. But there's a lot more to Shabbos. And therefore, the mitzvah, which means to say, how do you do this? How do you actually fulfill this? Is the explanation of that, that it comes with these 39 categories, and these 39 categories have subcategories, and this is what Shabbos looks like, and its connection to, Mik- to Mishkan, and my separations, and now we know what to do. Right, that was a necessary component, because otherwise, right, after the first Shabbos after Matan Torah, everybody would have died, because they didn't know what to do. So that's a necessary component of Torah. So there's the Torah the Torah Shaval Peh, which explains that, 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 that enterprise. Now, that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the entire Torah. So he wrote 12 books of the Torah, one for each tribe for posterity. And the 13th one was actually placed in the Aaron, in the Ark of the Covenant. Should be noted, this is actually a debate in the Gemara Mbaasar if it went in the ark, or if it went next to the ark on a ledge which came out of it, the Gemara by Basra Yudalit. But nonetheless, the Rambam is passing that it belonged in the Aaron. So, so although we to ourselves always imagine the tablets fitting into the Aaron, it's true the tablets went there and the Shivrei Luchos as well, but there was also a Sefer Torah. Why was it put there? By the way, what, what was the point of this whole, uh, this whole business? So the reason is, he says, is, right, he says, the, um, is, does he quote it here? But in general, the Gemara says, is that this was used as a golden standard. So like in France, in Paris today, there is the platinum meter, right? And that is, that is the, 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 the exact measure of what the meter is. And it doesn't, it's not affected by temperature, it's not affected by aging, and that it becomes what we'll call the platinum standard, what people call the gold standard. The reason it's called the gold standard is because they used it in gold so you could actually <coughs> measure it. So it was, this became the gold standard because now they could, if they ever had a question about a Sefer Torah which was being written, they would go into the Kodesh Kadoshim, bring out the Torah, and ratify the Torah which is being written with the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu. That was why it was there. So in terms of just get, getting a sense of how the transmission of the Torah Shabbat Sav worked. And he quotes the Pasuk, which is towards the end of the Torah, in the end of Sefer Devarim, Shunem HaLokach is Sefer HaTorah Azeh, the Samtim HaOisai, quoting the Pasuk. Va'mitzvah, she pirusha Torah lo'kosva. The mitzvah, the parts explaining it. So how do you do Shabbos, right? What does Tfilin look like? Those, all those questions, the Torah Sheba Alpeh, those were never written down. Moshe Rabbeinu commanded to the Zakanim, to the elders, and to Joshua, his, his servant. And therefore, it was understood orally. So, 
Therefore, there are two parts of Torah. One part is written for all ages, and, it ha- and we will call it, it has the gold standard. And the other part is now transmitted orally to those who understand it. So therefore, the only way to really, the only way to really understand this is, is to actually have access to the text and have somebody explain to me what the, to, to me what the text actually means. And those, therefore, to co- continue throughout the generations. That's the way to start it, the way the Ramam explains it. We, what, we sh- what we should think about, be thinking about in our, just, you know, ourselves, is, is so what, what's the relationship between the two of them, right? What's, well, in, in, terms of mag- in terms of size, in terms of point, what is, what is, the, what is the main part, what is the an ancillary part? There's a debate within this. You know, if you read like, a lot of the Torah in the 1800s, so for instance, the Rambam, the, sorry, the Malbim, the Rav Hirsch, the Ksavah Kabbalah, many of the, the Sforim which came out in the 1800s who were really struggling to defend Torah Shabal Peh against the reform movement, a lot of the perspectives of the Torah Shabal Peh were revealed at that point in time. So as an example, the Malbim would say that if you were to really, really read the Torah Shabich Sav correctly with the right tools, and he enumerates over 600 tools to reading the Torah Shabich Sav, you would automatically arrive at the Torah Shabal Peh. That's the way the, the, the Malbim says it. So it means to say it's really actually incorporated within it. It's, it's collapsed into it. It's just now expanded outwards. That's one way of saying it. The, the Rav Hirsch says it's the opposite. Rav Hirsch says that the Torah Shabbat in fact, is the lecture notes. Meaning to say, sorry, the, the Torah Shabbat is the lecture notes of the experience of Sinai. So as an example, the Rav says at the beginning of Parashat Mishpatim, he, he says, you know when you, let's say, you, you, you take a course. Let's say a person goes to, to a course in physics and they take notes. And as they're taking notes, they write, you know, they write notes, and this, this particular point is important, so they underline it, they put an NB in the column, they put a little diagram to help explain it. And then what happens is, is that when they're reviewing for the final, they look at their notes and they remember in the specific way they did it, and the extra added notes in the column, and the emphasis, and they now, they, now they, it all comes back to them what the professor was saying at that particular point, the Havdil. So the Rav, so the Rav Hirsch says, that's exactly what was happening at, at Har Sinai. The Torah Shavich Sav was the lecture notes of the experience of Matan Torah. Matan Torah was much more than simply a book that was written. Matan Torah was an experience. Matan Torah was seeing the Almighty incandescently clear. So what had happened is the lecture notes were given, which is the Torah Shavich Sav. But the Torah Shavich Sav, then every innuendo, every detail of it now allows us to be able to remember what happens at the experience of the lecture, so to speak, at Sinai. But if, you did, if all you have is the lecture notes, you're not going to get there, right? Imagine taking somebody else's physics notes, Lavdiel, right? And trying to recreate the experience of knowing what the professor said. Hopeless, right? You have no idea. Right? What does he mean with that, with that chemical formula? What does he mean by that, that, that this is NB? What, what was the professor describing? What was the example that you referenced over here? Why is that letter bigger? Right? So the point is, without the Torah Shabbat, without having been at the lecture, you can't understand the lecture notes. That's so the, the Rav Hirsch understands it. So just understand that there's a very important relationship between these two entities. The written and the, and the oral, and there's, a, there's debates as to how they click together. But nonetheless, in terms of what actually happened, one was written down, one was transmitted. That's our starting point. Now what the Ramam is going to do for us is explain, well, how did it get a carry on getting transmitted? So for the next section right now, we're not going to go through it in, 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 in great detail, but the, the next section, which is section two, is essentially the Ramam's description of how the Torah arrived at as we have it to, to today at the writing of the time of the writing of the Mishnah. Okay? So he's going to move all the way from <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu all the way to Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. So let's just appreciate this in terms of years. The Torah was given in the year from creation. 2448, right? Um, so we're, we're talking about 3,331 uh, years ago. And... 
two months. Okay, so uh, so so we're talking about a little while. No, just one month. Um, a little while back. So after that, of course, they were in the desert for forty years, and they were in Israel for for eight hundred plus years. Then then there was there was exile, and then they came back for another four hundred and ten years. So four hundred twenty years. There was a, there's a whole period in between. Two hundred years after that is when the mission was written in the year two hundred CE after the base of Migdash. Was, uh, was destroyed. So we're talking about a significant amount of time that we're covering. So the Rambam is now going to trail, the, uh, trail after that movement in the tradition. Who received from whom? So like, how do we know what we have is what we have? So who is transmitting this entity, this corpus of material orally? And he goes through person to person. Just so we'll take a quick look at the beginning, but we're not going to go through uh, all of it. He says, he taught it to the 70 elders in his, in his court. Who are those 70 elders? Where did we meet them beforehand? This 70, we met in Parashat 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 We just passed them. These were the 70 people, Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? He expanded his prophetic potential to these 70 people. The elder of the Medad were the exceptions. Right? So the, these 70 people became part of who Moshe Rabbeinu. By the way, it's important. Whenever the Ramah says anything, we have to appreciate where is he saying it from. Right? Everything has a source. But the Ramah doesn't tell us the sources. So it's important to do this. And then he, he says, So the three main students were Elazar, Pinchas, and Yoshua. And So he commanded, so Yoshua became the prime key holder in this. Um, in the, in this. He learned this all orally. Many of the elders received from Yoshua. The kibel eli min azakenim umi pinchas. The shmuel kibel me eli umi beistinai. And he goes on. Then there's eli. Eli appears in which book in Tanakh? Beginning of Shmuel. Right. So by the way, it's important to know this because we have zakenim, we have Sefer Yoshua, and we have Sefer Shoftim in between. So Sefer Shoftim takes a long time, actually, about 369 years. So, so therefore, if that's true. Who's who's like in between Yoshua and Eli? So he's saying it's the Zakanim is one part of that. There were the elders, meaning to say maybe the Zakanim referred to the Shoftim as an example, as the judges. It also, but there's also another person he puts in there. Who's that? Pinchas. That's really important because we see Pinchas appears at the end of the book of Shoftim, in the whole story of Pilegesh Begiva, which means to say that Pinchas was around. So therefore, I now have a direct link from. Moshe to Yoshua to Eli, because I know there were all these Shoftim, but also there was one individual who lived all that time. How did he live so long? The answer is because one of the things that happens in this week's parish, in Parshish Pichas, is Hinani Noi Shalom. I gave him the peace covenant. What does the peace covenant mean? One of the explanations is peace from the Malachim that he had extreme longevity. So therefore, this is an important part of the chain of Masorah, at least getting us to the next step, which is Eli. Just to appreciate, we, like every step of the way, is accounted for, but we need to make sure we got we have the accounting. So then the Rama continues and he goes through and uh, he goes through all the all the details then. Eli gives to Shmuel, Shmuel kibel me Eli me beistino, David kibel me Shmuel beistino, Achia Shiloni, Miyotzi Mitzrayim Hoya. Then there's Achia Shiloni, who is a who is a is a mysterious character um, who appears in uh, numerous times as many people's teachers. Very fascinating <laughs> individual. Good morning, Basu talks about him later on. Very fascinating individual, and it goes through all these people, and then he actually lines up all the Nevi'im. This is very important, by the way. To line up the Nevi'im, we all kind of think of Nevi'im Achronim, Nevi'im Rishonim, the trail, so we all kind of think of them, you know, as all sitting at one table. It was really much, it was a very specific tra- historical trajectory. Amos was the teacher of Yeshayahu. We need to appreciate, put things into perspective, and that's what he does over here. Who is giving, who is transmitting to whom? The point I'd like to focus on right now 
is actually the bottom of this column on the right, the second last, the third last line, which goes as follows. That's, a tr- that's an important point. Ezra, who is at the tail end of Tanakh, now receives from Baruch Beneria. Who is Baruch Beneria? He was the scribe of Yirmiyahu Anabi. Yirmiyahu Anabi lived at the time of the destruction of the first base of Mingdash. Baruch Beneria was his scribe, which is explicitly in the book of Yirmiyahu, and he tells Baruch to write down everything. Baruch Beneria obviously lived long enough to meet the people coming back at the beginning of the second base of Mingdash. That's an important link in the chain, because Ezra was receiving from Baruch Beneria. That's a very important critical link. Now, why this is insignificant is because Ezra starts a new stage of Jewish history, which is based in Oshel Ezra, Haim Anshei Knesses Hagdola. The next stage of the transition, transmission is the Anshei Knesses Hagdola. Ezra was the head of this, of this entity called Anshei Knesses Hagdola, and that was his based in. Now, just an important point within this is you'll notice, if you, the, the, the Ramam is, never wastes a word and he never wastes a, a phrase. In looking at this, if you take a quick look at the Ramam before this line that we just learned, and after this line, you will see a difference in the way the Ramam describes transmission. So he has an, this Rav Yaakov Weinberg points out. Let's take a look before this line. When it talks about everybody receiving from everybody else up till now, you'll notice it will say the person received, right, from the previous, the, uh, previous generation and they're based in, right? So for instance, he gives an example, Elisha kibel meliyahu based inoi. Elisha learns from Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, and the basin of, of Elijah. Notice everything after this is different. Everything after this is, after Anshaknesagdala, he describes, um, he, he gives a whole description of who Anshaknesagdala are flowing onto the top of the next column. He's the Akronaya Mishimon Atzadik, Vuhuaya Michlala Hamea Vestrim. He was one of the 120 of this Anshaknesagdala. He was the coin godol after Ezra. The next person is Antignos Ish Soichoi, and is based in who received from Shimon Atzadik. Now, you see something interesting, and this carries on the same pattern. Up till Zagdala, the way it's described is person X received from the previous generations based in. Right? And then person Y received from the previous generations person and based in. There afterwards, after Anshek and what happens? It says, it says person X and their based in received from the previous generation. Right? So now it's Shimon Antignois Ish Soichoi and his based in received from Shimon Atzadik, as opposed to what was beforehand where Shmuel learns from Eli and his based in. What you see over here as an important point is that actually the shift of power has shifted just in the very basic way the Ramam has described it, that before, beforehand there was one central authority who was responsible for transmission. <coughs> that was one person, that was that Navi, whether it was Eli, whether it was Shmuel, whether it was, Eli, whether it was Elisha, Eliyahu, whether it was Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, there was one person in charge of, the, of that material, and he educated his Beistin. Therefore the next generation learned from him and, their, and, and his Beistin. After Anshay Knesset something changed, and that was that the, actually the transmission, the receiving end, had to be receiving. Many, there were many receivers, not one receiver anymore. There was the whole base in was receiving. Why was that necessary? Because one individual could no longer receive it. One individual could no longer encompass all that material, required a team to receive the material of transmission of Torah Shabbat Peh. That's what seems to be happening over here. What changed? Why is the Rambam describing this differently? What changed in the, in the, in, in the transition over here? What was the major shift? Nevoah ended. 
Nevoen and Machlokes enters in five generations later. We'll see where it starts. But it's interesting that what happened over here is the cessation of Nevoa. Remember, let's go back to the first mission in Perkei Avos. Right? Moshe Kibel Torah Messina. Umasrola Yoshua Yoshua Zakanim. Zakanim and Nevi'im. Nevi'im Masrola Anshe Kines Zagadola. What it means to say, when you say Nevi'im, who are the Nevi'im? That means to say that every Navi of that generation was the single shareholder. He was the single key holder to the entire entity of Torah Shaval Peh. He obviously educated the rest of the people in his generation. But he himself could have the capacity of holding it. Why? Because he was a Navi. But after Nevoa ceased, which is when Anshakinasagdola started, when the men of the Great Assembly started, now you no longer had one person who had the capacity to be able to do this. He needed a team to receive all of that material. He needed lots of people to help memorize it together with him. That's you see a shift in the transmission. By the way, this is this, the Ramah doesn't ex- explicate this. Just in the way where he puts the word based in tells us this. So just like just to get a sense of the significance of this. Now, moving on to the next step over here in, on, in transmission, you'll notice something very interesting. Of course, the next stage, the next little part of this paragraph relates to the first paragraph of, of Perkei Avos, where we see a lot of people that we recognize. There's Antigonosh Yisoichai, then we, see, then we hear about Yosef ben Yoezer, and Yosef ben Yoezer Ishtzreda, Yosef ben Yochanan Yishushalayim, and then we have Yoshua ben Prachia, Nitahar Beli, then we have Shimon ben Shetach, and Yehuda ben Tabai, then we have Yoshua ben Prachia, Nitahar Beli, and Shmai Vavtalion, and then we have Hillel and Shammai. Notice in this, in this next step of the, of the transmission, there are always in twos, which is why this section of, of transmission is always called not Tanaim, but Zugois. A Zug means pairs. Why were they pairs? What does it mean they were pairs? How did that work exactly? Why is the first Perikim Mishnah always in pairs, except for Shimon, Atzadik, and uh, Antigonus? Answer is, one was the head of the Basin, and one was the Nasi. There were two leaders of every generation through the period of the second base of Migdash, which is when this is focusing on. And in that time, although we didn't have Nevi'im, and we didn't have kings until the Chashmonaim took over, we had two leaders. One was, in a certain sense, the gravitas of the Nasi, the president, so to speak. And the other one was the Av Basin, and the two worked together. And that's how, how, how <coughs> transmission went. By the way, it's so much simpler now at this point in time. There's no Machloikas yet. Hila and Shama were the first ones to preserve a Machloikas, the end of the Zugos. Everything is clear. There's a, there's a Sanhedrin. Everything is clear. Two leaders. And then it carries on after that. After Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that's when we no longer have pairs. Now suddenly we see a more complex uh, constellation of leadership. Why did that change? Why is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai the changing point of the system? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is the person we learn about in the Gemara Gitin when we're allowed to learn about on Tishabav. Here's the person who lived through the destruction of the second Besamila. She was the one who reestablished Yavne v'chachomer, he was the one who reestablished the, the line of Rabon Gamliel from the line of Hillel. And the reason why the Zugo stopped, one of the reasons it stopped, was because of the encroaching Roman Empire and the inability to be able to maintain it. The Sanhedrin was dissolved early, at this point in time. We're talking about a very serious stage in Jewish history. And so the leadership constellation changes. And now we have, as opposed to two leaders of a generation, we have many different leaders in different places. And that's what he follows through, and he explains how Rabbi Yochanan Mezaka cultivated the leader of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon had a, a son whose name was Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel's son was Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. And then, which by the way means to say that if they weren't la- la- naming after live people, that means to say they were dying early, right? If that's, what, if that's the, way, the way it works. And, um, and then we have this chain which goes forward. The reason why this chain is important is because although there are many Chachamim, People like Ra- Ra- Rabon Gamliel, he wasn't called Rebbe Gamliel, he was called Rabon Gamliel. He was the head of the generation because he had the line he had, and he had the blood of Hillel. Hillel had Davidic blood in him 
and therefore that was preserved because that was, even though they didn't have a king and they were now in exile, they preserved that line of blood to be able to maintain this. So just a lot of fascinating aspects of Jewish history and ultimately that line yielded a master, a leader of all times and his name was, he was called um, Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu HaKadosh in the, in the late first century common era and that was second century common era and that is Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. Rabbi Nasi was the one who now actually wrote down the mission, and that's where we pick up again. Okay, so it really would require us to actually go through every line over here and notice every diok, every exactitude that the Rambam is telling us about the line of transmission. But right now we don't have the time to do that, but just to appreciate that, they, that, that it's not as if suddenly, you know, we arrived at the mission. The mission suddenly, you know, suddenly popped into existence one day. There's a very specific way that we know it got to us. Now, the Rambam now describes what happened up to This is such an important point now. We're moving into section 3. Section 3 is the bottom left of the column on the first page. And the question we have to deal with over here is that, is that did they, was there no writing up till now? Did nobody write anything down up till this point in time? It was only now suddenly that, that, that the mission was written down. Rabbi Yodai was the first person who invented the, the manuscripts. How did, what, what was going on up till now? So uh, the truth is, is that they did write a little bit. Here's, here's how he, the Ramam explains it. Uh, we're taking a look at three lines at the bottom, section three on the left-hand side. He's the Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Chibir HaMishnah. Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yodai wrote and authored the Mishnah. There was no one manuscript, there was no one book which contained all the teachings of Moshe Rabbeinu up to this point. So every leader would write their own notes. So whichever leader it was would write their own footnotes, their own we'll call you know sort of um, scale, you know general structure of their notes of the of the teachings they had, and they would use that as their lecture notes to everybody else. But this wasn't published, this wasn't publicly accessible. This was simply their notes, and every other leader after them would write their notes based on their understanding and be able to transmit it further. However, he says. <laughs> He wrote it as he understood it and as it was transmitted to him. And any extra additions, any expoundings of the Torah were also written down and added to the notes of that particular leader. This was how it used to go until Rabbi Yohanan Nasi. What did he do? He gathered all the different teachings, all the different teachers, all the laws, all the explanations of Yerushim, and he put it all together. And the reason why he was able to do this, by the way, was because, number one, he lived at a gap after the Hadrianic persecutions where there was more space for Jews to exist religiously, and also, he was fabulously wealthy, which meant to say that he did not depend on anybody. He held court, and therefore he was able to bring in everybody from wherever they were living at this point in time, in Babylon, in Israel, all around. And he brought everybody and he says, tell me what you, you heard. And he took all that material and he put it together into one entity called the Mishnah, which is divided into six sections, which we call today Shas, Shisha Sadarim. Um, and, he says, and then he goes on to say, and he taught it to all of Israel, and he wrote it all down. 
And now he taught it everywhere so the Torah should not be forgotten. Which leads us to an important question. Why now? Why did Rabbi Yehudah Rabbi, Rabbi Nasi decide at this point in time in history, more than any point up till now, that it needed to be written down in one place and it wasn't sufficient with the lecture notes of one person versus another person? This is already post the Mikdash destruction. Why now? He explains, why did he do this? Why did he not leave it as it was? He saw that there were fewer students. There were fewer people who had the capacity to be able to receive. And there were more and more tsaras for the Jews in their exile existence. And the Roman Empire continued to expand and, and grow in power. And the Jews were spread to every, every corner of the known world. Therefore, He gave us one framework which would allow us not to forget to remain, to, to actually incorporate the Torah Shabbat. This is important because, as the Gemara and Gittin tells us, this was a sacrifice. It came with sacrifice. And that it, is, it was what was called a Horaas Shah. The teaching of the hour that that because of the need to preserve the Torah, they actually made a sacrifice by writing it down. What sacrifice do you make by writing it down? Big discussion. What sacrifice do you make by writing down the Torah Shabbat? This was up till now was all oral, except for borrowing a few lecture notes, right? So why why was it? There, what was the sacrifice of writing it down? There's much debate about this, but um, what was that? Ah, oh, so good. So the Shlach HaKadosh says a fascinating thing, which is, which is, um, which is very, very fascinating. He says that the HaKadosh Baruch Hu realized that when he gave religion to the Jewish people, there would be many, uh, there would be a second market, as they say, right? There would be lots of people who would be interested in this, and therefore he wanted to preserve the truth of Judaism by not making it written down. It was, our, it was, it was holy to us and unique to us. And therefore the Torah Shabbat Shabbat, of course, was, was adopted and, and corrupted by many other religions. <laughs> right, we don't have to look too far. But the Torah Shabbat Shabbat, he wanted to maintain as oral Torah so that other nations would not be able to copy and corrupt it because you had to be part of the system to be able to get it. And if when we wrote it down, we ultimately made ourselves accessible to the rest of the world. And, you know, go look. Look, look at how Hadith works, which is the, which is the, the Islam compar- comparison of Gomorrah. Of course, it came 400 years later when Islam was invented. Um, but just to appreciate this, I mean, it follows a similar kind of thought process because... The Torah Shabbat was already written down. Right, so just to, to appreciate um, the, the perspective, oh yeah, that was one aspect of what was happening um, of, uh, of, of the writing down the Torah Shabbat So let's, let's start right now over here. So at this point in time, we've got to the history of the writing of the Mishnah. That still is a good eight, sorry, 900 years before the Rambam had lives, right? So now what happens afterwards? So the, the Rambam then goes, uh, goes uh, he, he, he makes an interesting point over here. We're not going to do this part inside as much, just for the sake of time. But the Rambam points out now, that, that uh, there was um, the based in of, of, of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, of Rebbe. He didn't just do this alone. It wasn't like he was opened up shop by himself. He had 11 people. He had 11 shareholders as part of his, um, of his, um, of his, um, his enterprise. And he describes who they were. 
And he goes on to give a list of who these people were. Some of these people we hear about, some of them we don't hear about, the, uh, hear about as much. He talks about uh, Shimon ben Gamliel, Bonov, Rabbi Ephes, Rabbi Hanina ben Chama, Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Rav, Rabbi Yanai, Bar Kapra, Shmuel, Rabbi Yochan, and Rabbi Hoshia. So he describes these people, we hear about some of them in the Gomorrah, and he describes them all on his basin. And in fact, it's interesting, there's a debate as to really, were, were they on his basin, were they not on his basin, did they live sufficiently early enough to be able to, do, uh, to be here. The Raiva disagrees with who was on it or not, as you can see, there's a footnote on the side there. Um, he goes on to describe that each of these people wrote their own, their own corpus of material. So after the mission was, was written, this now opened the floodgates for writing down Torah Shabbat so now you start seeing the emergence of other, uh, of other materials on the Torah Shabbat Peh. So ideas like Brysa, Tosefta, right? These, these extra added. If you read a Tosefta, the Tosefta follows almost the same, same format as the Mishnah, just it has extra additional, um, um, we'll call it explanations, expansions. It's the same people talking. And very often a Tosefta is very helpful in trying to understand the Mishnah. There are people who wrote Pirushim just on the Tosefta, Right? Well, and, and in fact, the Gomorrah often will marshal Tosefta into, uh, into as, a, as a question of the Mishnah, because the Mishnah isn't consistent with the Tosefta or a Brysa, as an example. So the students of Rabbi Akkadosh started writing now. The extra, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi didn't write down everything. He wrote down what we'll call the basic framework of Torah Shabbat Peh, but there was much that was left unsaid. So already we start seeing the emergence of more sayings, which it was in the form of Tosefta and, uh, and Brysa. Now, I'm, I'm looking at the time. The time is, is not very favorable right now because we just got midway over here. So what, what, what I would like to do is I'm just going to see if there's a, there's a way to, uh, to do this. Don't want to, to, to lose any, uh, any of the, 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 the punch over here um, because it's such a, we, we really have so much ahead of us still. What we should do is like this. Um, what I would think is I, I, don't want to, I don't want to rush this because there's so much, there's so much to talk about. What we're going to do is, is, is the following is, um, is uh, one last point here, and then, then I want to just, uh, just highlight what lays ahead of us, because right now we've not yet done, we've not yet done the movement from Mission to Gomorrah, and who published the Gomorrah, how was the Gomorrah published, why was it published when it was published. After the Gomorrah, what happens? The Gomorrah was published around the year 500. It's a pretty, pretty general term, for approximately. But after the Gomorrah, we have almost a silence in Jewish history of writing. We do have some writing, but there's almost a silence in writing, radio silence, till around the 1100s, the early 1000s, which we start seeing now people like Rashi emerging, like the Rambam, like the Ramban, what we call today the Rishonim, emerging. There seems to be 600 years of, or 500 years of radio silence, and in that is a period called the Gaonim. And the Rambam is going to explain what happened during that period. What, what, how was transmission continuing now in the new era of continued Golas, how did the transmission of Torah Shabbat work? Can we track down who were the key holders through that particular period? So that's something we still have ahead of us. So we have two periods. We have the Talmudic period and we have the Gaonic period still to get to. We also haven't got to really what I think is the most critical part over here, which, we, which is yet, this is just a trailer for going forward, is that what is the Torah Shabbat Meaning, okay, it explains the Torah Shabbat That's what he's, he's set up till now. But that's not it. There's much more. There are subsections of Torah Shabbat Peh. Some of them were transmitted. Some of them were expounded. Some of them were created. How do they differ from each other? Why were they necessary? When did each of them emerge? These are very important ideas to, to appreciate. And then once he gets to that point, then the Rambam is going to justify the reason why he wrote this book. 
and we haven't got there yet. The Rabbi says he has going to explain why it's necessary to reformat all of Talmudic history into a completely new new framework, which he's going to call Mishnah Torah. Why does it, is, is it necessary? And that's what, that, that's what we're going to get to. So these are all things we have ahead of us. I don't want to rush it. I'd like to end with one, with one, last, one last point. Now, what he does now is a very fascinating thing. Is that after going through the Gemara, just you'll take a look in section 6. He gives us a list in reverse from Rav Ashi at the end of the Gemara all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu. How many generations does it take? It takes 40. Which means to say that there's a 40-person link. Very specific 40-person chain from Moses to Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi published the Gemara in the year 500. That's a remarkable a remarkable thing. That is only 39 levels of communication. That's pretty remarkable. It's obviously hundreds of years, but only 40 conversations, 39 conversations were necessary for this to exist, which gives us a little bit more of a sense of how we got to where we got to now. Question I'd like to just throw out to everybody now is where are we today? What number in that chain are we today in the year 2019? Tafshin, I and How far along that chain can we be from Moshe Rabbeinu? We don't just practice Judaism just because we know. We know what we have. We know where it came from. We know the truth of it. How far along that chain we are. Food for thought in terms of homework. And God willing, next time we're going to pick up with the Rambam. Talmud, Ge'onim, the parts of Torah Shabbat and why he wrote the Sefer as it is. Thank you so much for taking the time, especially on a fast day.